This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R sponsors. The real story of the ocean depths begins where you left off. Wonders that defy my powers of description. The secrets that are mine alone. Three minutes past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name's Bron Burton. And I'm Angeline Charles. How are, how are you, Angeline? I'm pretty good. good. I'm pretty good. Nice, beautiful, sunny day outside too. Yeah. I'm a bit disconcerted. Are you? It doesn't feel right. A little right. bit. I'm a little... I mean, it's... It's kind of weird to say this. I'm a little bit let down. I've got the gloves. I've got the coat. I've got the scarf. Everything's <laughs> happening. They're all unpacked and it's gone all sunny on me. It's like you're all <laughs> accessorised and nowhere to go. That's right. I am. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Well, look, let's just see I what happens. I bet it's coming, though. I'm not actually sure at all. I know. We keep saying winter is coming. If you're a Game of Thrones fan, that will have double meaning. Season six is just out. But anyway. I'm over my head there. I'm waiting for the hype to die down. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you very much, Dan. What a stellar fill on Vital Bits. He's getting lots of phone calls. People, um, I'm sure, saying what an amazing job. Groovy. Yeah, very groovy. Good listen on the way in. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, we've got a big show lined up today. We're going to cross to New South Wales reasonably shortly to speak with Skip Woolley. And he is a, uh, or was, I think he's just finished, a PhD student um, at both Museum Victoria and the University of Melbourne and is the lead author on a paper which has just been published in Nature this week. Uh, It's a collaborative piece looking at um, biodiversity in the sea, but particularly in the deep oceans, uh, on a global scale. Wow. It's actually an extraordinary piece of work where they've um, collaborated with other researchers and um, pulled together uh, centuries of information and data to have a look at biodiversity uh, as it 
changes at different depths and then across different um, parts of the globe, different continents, proximity to continental shelves, all that kind of stuff. Um, and using specifically brittle stars and basket stars yeah. as an indicator. Fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. It'd be really interesting to see all the connections they make. That's right. So we're going to cross um, and speak with him. He's actually on holiday at the moment. He's finished his PhD, so he's very kindly <laughs> agreed. I'm surprised he's going to pick up the phone if he's on holiday. <laughs> I know, especially post-PhD holiday. You can yeah. just really make the most of that. Uh, we are then going to cross to Terry Allen. She's at Mount Gambier teaching diving. Oh, um, so we're going to have a, a quick dive report from her and also talk about world record that was set a couple of weeks ago by a Kiwi um, and this is uh, world free diving so uh, it's free diving so yep. this, this guy set the world record in the Bahamas Fantastic. so if you're wondering what free diving is that's when um, you take a big deep breath and just go down as far as you can go for as long as you can yeah and, without uh, scuba Without scuba, yep. that's right. So you have no Not without of... equipment, but without scuba. Well, I mean, the only equipment that they have is... Um... The line that helps to take them down there. That's it. <laughs> and then it's all set so that they have um, they have to sort of bring up a little tag that says that they've actually reached that depth. There was a movie made in the 1980s called The Big Blue. Yeah, that was a great movie. Yeah, yep. and it was um, about free diving and particularly about Jacques Mayol, who was a, a free... It was It's based on a true story, um, a French free diver. And um, anyway, th- that record has been broken many times since and uh, it's just been broken again. Great. So, yep. Really looking forward to talking to Terry. So we're not actually speaking with um, oh, his name, uh, William Truebridge. So we're not speaking with William himself, but I would love to get him on. We'll actually see if we can manage that sometime in the weeks ahead. Then we're going to be crossing to, uh, I think, to Zoos Victoria. He may not actually be there um, on the, on the, at Melbourne Zoo, but Mark Keenan, who is the coordinator for the Marine Response unit and if you tuned in last week you'll remember that we had a a phone call just before the show um, alerting us to the presence of a green turtle in Blegari and turtles uh, green turtles are tropical animals Um, particularly in the summer months we do find them in the bay they they kind of make their way down the east coast of Australia um, follow the current and sometimes end up in the bay uh, anyway, it's very unusual to see one at this time of the year they're usually well and truly on their way back up to Queensland I was just trying to think of a, of a Nemo quote there because that's just what oh, it, comes to mind. Sorry, is. and I'm failing. No, you're, but you're, the, the hang shell dude, <laughs> yeah, maybe that's that right. one. Yeah, <laughs> he's hung on to the wrong shell. This poor turtle. Anyway, Marine Response Unit was the uh, the the group we were advised to um, promote if people came across the turtle, and then got chatting after the show and thought we really need to do a piece on the Marine Response Unit because we don't really know that much about who they are and what they do. So we're going to do that today. Terrific. And you've, great. And you've got a bunch of news. I have. We're going to talk about the uh, recent impacts of what has been the strongest El Nino ever felt uh, for the world. Probably, I wouldn't say it'd be the strongest one ever that the world's ever experienced. We don't know because we haven't been recording them for recording them for thousands of years of for which they've been occurring uh, but it's been very strongly felt in Palau and Chile so have a bit of a chat about those impacts. Mm. Talk to Terry about that too she's done a lot of diving in Palau. Well she'll be very disappointed to hear what's happening there okay. which is very sad but hopefully it's uh, not the end. I've got a quick news item too on um, another big oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico, which happened a couple of days ago. So we'll talk about that yes. in a minute as well. Uh, weather for today, 21 degrees, um, partly cloudy, 
30% chance of shower in the late morning and afternoon. Winds to northwesterly to 35 kilometres an hour during the morning. Uh, so looking at potentially a shower in the Melbourne metro region uh, in the late morning and afternoon. So if you want to get your washing done, you better drag yourself out of bed and do it now. <laughs> otherwise, what a great start to your Sunday. Otherwise, you'll be joining the queue at the laundromat this afternoon, assuming you have a line. Uh, tomorrow, 21 degrees possible late shower and Tuesday, 19 and cloudy and it's going to hover around the high teens for the rest of the week and be partly cloudy and dry and then uh, a shower or two possibly on Thursday but yep, in those high teens all the way through. Tide times at the heads, uh, heading for a low tide at quarter to 12, quarter to midday. That's probably the only one of relevance there. Uh, surf forecast, uh, a west to northwesterly breeze is favouring the surf coast this morning before tending west to southwesterly later. Residual southerly, uh, sorry, southwesterly groundswell is easing. It has been huge this week. I've seen some yeah, pics up has. on social media, yep. particularly down at Bell's. The, the surf has been huge. Uh, water temperature 16 degrees, so it's very much on its way down. Uh, at the island, workable conditions at protected locations early. Mornington Peninsula sets fading from a two-metre range, although wind affected, particularly in the afternoon. And surf coast, good quality options during the morning, easing and becoming bumpy later on. All right. So that big swell that you just talked about, um, our scientists think has been responsible for a lot of strandings that we've seen in Victoria this week. Mm. Uh, so the museum has said that they've uh, collected a dwarf, uh, a rare dwarf sperm whale at Lake Tyres and they're having a look at that. It's quite an interesting looking animal. I've never really seen one before. No. They think that the one that they've collected uh, from Lake Tyres is probably going to be the best specimen ever collected in the world because um, it's in, in relatively good condition. It's a very rare deep diving animal. We hardly ever see it. So to come ashore is, is quite rare, rare. And then there were also two pygmy sperm whales which were off um, Wonthaggy and there was one off Warrnambool um, they don't say what sort of whale it was uh, but it was washed out to shore out to sea after it had come ashore and they think it was potentially taken by a shark but yeah sort of the, the rough waters giving whales a, a bit of a hard time the smaller mm. ones. Four in a week is quite unusual isn't it? It is yeah, yeah. Cool thank you Welcome. Not cool. Well, but, not, um, for, not for whales, but th th it's on the up for them. Yeah. Now, despite decades of research and huge advances in technology, the deep sea floor remains the least explored ecosystem on Earth. However, this week we've had exciting news in leading science journal Nature that a team of scientists, including two from Melbourne, have made big steps in improving this by creating the first map of sea floor diversity across the world's oceans. Focusing on brutal stars and basket stars, the map reveals for the first time that biodiversity is remarkably different in deep oceans compared to shallower waters and also land-based ecosystems. Systems. To tell us more, we're very pleased to welcome to Radio Marinara and Triple R from Museum Victoria and the University of Melbourne, Skipton Woolley. Good morning, Skipton. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. We know, for having me. We, know, we know you're on holiday at the moment. Whereabouts are you, just so just to, to put us into some kind of perspective? I'm in um, South West Rocks, which is about halfway between Coffs Harbour and Port Macquarie. Fantastic. Are you diving up there? No, not currently. I have in the past. Uh, my parents live here, up here, so I'm just here visiting them. Oh, awesome. Fantastic. I did a, a dive up there years ago at Fish Rock Cave, so I still remember it. It was one of my favourite dives. 
Oh, it's an awesome spot. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Lots of fun. Now, um, we understand your contribution to this work was for your PhD. And um, I thought we'd just, I'd start by asking you, what got you interested in the deep sea for a PhD topic? Is this something that you've always had a passion for or was it something that developed as you were an undergraduate? Um, yeah, I've always been interested in, like, marine diversity or marine biology in general. And I did a undergraduate degree at Melbourne Uni looking at um, I do marine biodiversity, uh, marine ecology, and then I started some work at Museum Victoria, and then kind of just got interested in, I guess, deep sea species there because often a lot of the, I guess, taxonomic work those guys do, focusing on describing deep sea species because they're often the ones we know least about. And then yeah, an opportunity um, came up to do, I guess, uh, more of a like ecological. Uh, project looking at like large-scale patterns of diversity in the deep sea and sounded like a great opportunity so I went for it. So uh, tell us about the work and how, how it actually so you've talked about how it came about um, did you have uh, so we should mention Tim O'Hara as well he was your supervisor I believe? Yeah so he's one of my supervisors so he's a um, he's largely a, a biogeographer and a taxonomist at the Museum of Victoria and he He's very interested in looking, describing patterns of biogeography, which is kind of like where uh, species, why species exist where they are, like what are the historical and I guess evolutionary processes that um, mean that you see the species where they are in the world. And so he's very interested in these, this kind of research and does a lot of uh, taxonomic research, so describing species, but also looking at, um, say, like phylogenetic relationships, so how different species are related to each other through time. And but he's also obviously interested in, I guess, more macroecological patterns, which kind of then, I guess, lends support and evidence towards the biogeographical, biogeographical stuff. So yeah, so he spent the last, um, I guess, 15, 20 years collecting this big global database to try and um, address these questions. And I was just lucky enough to um, start a PhD when I was all ready to go. So. And it's so often a case of timing, isn't it, that you've got this interest in this field and here's this enormous big piece of work ready to go and, and the stars align and off you go. Actually, there's a, a pun there that I wasn't intending to use, but um, the, the stars aligning takes us to that question. Why did you have that focus on brittle and basket stars particularly? Yeah, so that's largely driven by um, Tim's, I guess, uh, personal research. So he's uh, an ophiroid... Uh, taxonomist at heart, so which means that he works on brittle and basket stars, which are closely related to like sea stars. Um, and through there, through his interest in that group, he's managed to build up this big database that he can then we can then actually start to address some of these large-scale questions and processes. Mm. So, um, for for uh, our listeners who aren't familiar with ophiroids, what what is it about? Um, brittle and basket stars that make them different to other types of sea stars so people are walking along sort of on the rocky shore which is probably where they're most likely to come across a sea star how do ophiroids differ just in you know in general terms in terms of how they look and some of their some of their features yeah so in shallow kind of like waters or rock pools they're quite cryptic so they're not they're kind of they like it hiding under stuff so you often don't see them as uh, often as you see like a sea star but they are they what they look what they look like in compared to a sea star is they're quite like 
bony looking, if that makes sense. Mm. They kind of they have these very hard skeletons, and they're not soft like a sea star, and they often have like a single disc, um, which is like their main part of their body that looks like say like a 50 cent piece, and then they have a, a whole lot of, like, I guess, uh, bony like. Uh, kind of arms that come off them mm. um, yeah and so they're quite cryptic in or they're hard to find in shallow water I guess areas because they like living under rocks or hiding in cracks and crevices so you don't see them that, that much but then as you start getting deeper into the deep ocean they kind of start coming to their own and they become I guess more visible there's more of them they're more abundant and so that's kind of why they're a good species to do this work on because they're quite common in the deep sea. Yeah, and across different um, different sort of latitudes as well because you find them in the polar regions as, as much as you would find them near the equator, don't you? It's, yeah, the, it's the deep sea that's the factor. That's the correct, yeah. So they're kind of found everywhere from, you know, sh- very shallow, even though they're, they're there, they're just hard to spot, but they're all the way down to kind of almost like Hadal depth and that's like the deep sea trenches like the Mariana Trench and this kind of stuff they're kind of that's the limit of their range up to there but they're pretty much found everywhere in the oceans which means that you can do these um, studies on them and compare I guess their patterns of diversity and their distributions um, across yeah. So, yeah. so let's focus on the nature paper. What what did you actually find because there's something that's quite significant in there isn't there about um, about energy availability? Yeah so so there's this kind of underlying theory um, in, I guess, macroecology or biogeography that energy drives patterns of diversity. So you see, um, and so this has kind of come out of terrestrial research. We're looking at patterns of um, diversity in, I guess, across the land, and they often find that there's high diversity in, say, the tropics. And so. There's all these competing theories on why that happens, but one of the strongest supporting theories is that it's through energy availability. So um, energy from the sun um, basically makes it environment, I guess, more warmer and more plants can grow and there's, you know, all these, you know, different aspects of what that energy provides to these species, which means it's kind of like a, a happier place for these species to live. And then they essentially means more species can live there. So then you get this higher, you get, I guess, high diversity in the tropics. Mm. Um, sorry, go on. Oh, no, sorry. And so the, what we show in our paper is that we see the same pattern for the shallow um, marine realm. So for like, the shelf, which is from about 20 to 200 metres, and the continental slope, which is about... 200 to 2,000 metres, we see similar, very similar patterns where we have this high diversity in the tropics and it looks like it's driven by this warmer temperature in the water. So you see this more species can survive there. But as you get start getting deeper into the ocean, especially below depths of 2,000 metres, it becomes homogeneously cold or cold everywhere. So it's, you know, the water temperature is like one or two degrees across the whole globe. And so you don't have this, I guess, thermal latitudinal gradient that means that you get higher species in like the tropical areas higher species diversity in tropical areas and what we found in our research was that it's energy from chemical energy from i guess um phytoplankton which are little microscopic organisms that tend to be in high numbers in temperate regions and they kind of they live on the sea surface and they 
eventually die and they sink to the sea floor and they become food for these um, deep sea creatures uh, in temperate areas. So you get these peaks of diversity in temperate regions, which is different from the kind of classic underlying patterns that we would see normally see. It's pretty amazing to uh, to have this sort of finally this connection actually made. I wanted to ask you about uh, the the fact that this has come from uh, recent research, but also hundreds of years of research as well. I'm just interested in the sort of information that came from the early pioneering voyages and whether or not that included um, the, some of the data collected by Joseph Banks and other uh, 18th and 19th century explorers. Yeah, so. Um I mean, the, fir- the first person to really think about this, the theory itself, was like people like Darwin and Wallace. So they, they were wondering why there was different distributions of species across the globe. And, um, you know, they didn't write it, you know, in the, the exact terms that we're speaking about it, but they had this idea that, well, the environment was kind of better there. So you see, or warmer and nicer, so they got more species in the tropics. And then in terms of deep sea diversity patterns, um, for a long time, deep sea was thought to be, I guess, like this null of anything. Like there was, you know, once you got below a certain depth, there was nothing there. And it wasn't until the late, um, in the 1870s when they did this big um, exhibition called the Challenger Exhibition. Um, and they essentially wanted to survey the world's oceans. And they took six years to go around the world and look at different parts of the deep sea on this big voyage called the Challenger. And they basically discovered then that the deep sea wasn't this, you know, um, this environment that had nothing in it. They actually found there's actually lots of species um, that lived in the deep sea and they were different around the globe. So that was kind of the first, I guess, uh, um, big field expedition that was looking at, I don't know, basically discovered that the deep sea actually had diversity and that it was different in different places. It's amazing to think that this research has all come together and it's such a big, uh, it's such a really good example of the importance of science and the importance of investing in science and research and, and particularly that sort of move away there's been this real criticism of you know investing in science for the sake of science but here is a perfect example in why that needs to happen and you've got hundreds of years of data that all comes together and potentially can be useful for and and again um, this is not the reason to do it but it's the sort of information that's invaluable for all kinds of different things and I know one of the big uh, Tim's big focuses of, of this is using it for conservation purposes because if we don't know what's out there then we don't know how it needs to be protected protected and conserved. Um, just on that, in terms of making this information available, is that something that you and Tim and your collaborators are doing? Is it the sort of information that's being, is it publicly available? Yeah, so um, a lot of the actual underlying data that's being used in this analysis is already publicly available. So it comes from museums around the world and most museums um, have to basically make their collections publicly available. Um, And so that means that Tim spent a long time going to these museums and putting names on these species and, I guess, updating each museum's database as he's been there and described the species there. So they are publicly available, I guess, at each individual um, museum's collection. And within the data set as a whole, we're looking towards um, putting it on some of these big public repositories um, like OBIS, which is this the Ocean uh, Biogeographic Information System, which is essentially 
uh, a data portal where they people put, I guess, um, species, you know, distributions um, for all sorts of, from shelf to deep sea, all sorts of uh, animals. Mm. Yeah. Um, just a couple of last questions to finish on, and it was around the, the issue of energy availability and that being a key determinant of biodiversity in the deep sea. Have you, you and Tim and your collaborators turned to your thoughts to on how this could be impacted by global warming and other related effects like ocean acidification? Is that something that is being discussed about, particularly within your circles? Um, yeah, so there's a, um, there's a few people like within so this research is part of um, the Marine Biodiversity Hub, which is a, a big national science program, and there's people within that hub that are starting to actually specifically looking at those questions. So how climate uh, change is affecting, I guess, marine communities and also deep sea marine communities. And there's you know, one. Um, there's all, I guess, a whole lot of different opinions on how climate change is going to affect these animals. But one thing that they are all quite sure on is that deep sea communities are quite, um, I guess, vulnerable to climate change because they because they live in environments that are, I guess, energy poor and it takes a long time for these species often to grow. So, for instance, like certain deep sea coral corals can live for, you know, um, thousands of years. And they often experience very little disturbance, unlike shallow water corals, so they don't get exposed to, say, like, you know, um, cyclones or these kind of natural events that would, um, like, wipe out coral communities and then enable other corals to come and, I guess, recolonise those areas, that they're actually quite vulnerable to disturbance. And so one, you know, thought is that climate change in the deep sea through changes in, I guess, um, ocean acidification, which will have influence on how these corals can form their skeletons. Um, also, changes in temperature because it's cold everywhere. If the water starts getting, if the ocean starts getting warmer, this might then have effects on um, uh, where these, if these species can actually survive down there. And also, um, within our terms of our paper, um, changes in, I guess, um, energy input. So if, if the phytoplankton on the surface regimes change, they like go shallower, if they go you know, more towards the tropics or more towards the poles, or they don't uh, work as well, I guess, under, say, they, you know, not as much phytoplankton is produced, then this will then, I guess, have a flow on effect onto these deep sea creatures because there'll be less, I guess, food for them to survive on um, under different climate change scenarios. That's amazing, Skip. We're going to have to move on. I'm just wondering uh, one last question and then we'll give a plug to the Nature Paper. Um, what are your plans next and where, where do you hope this research will go next? Are you staying in the field? Yeah, I hope to stay in research and um, keep on working on these really interesting um, large-scale diversity modelling patterns um, and biogeography kind of uh, research. And um, I guess what we're trying to really use do now is take these kind of diversity patterns and try, like you said earlier, look at how we can, um, I guess, use them to inform conservation. Um, so we're going to starting to look at how we can, I guess, use these patterns to then think about how we might conserve different regions of the deep sea. Brilliant. Hey, it's been wonderful speaking with you. Uh, I'm going to let you go and enjoy your Sunday morning and enjoy being up on the, the mid-New South Wales coast too. It's such a special part of the world. Thanks so much for joining us and I hope to catch up with you again in the near future and we'll put a um, connection to your nature paper on our Facebook page as well. Great. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Gifton. Talk to you soon.
Bye. Bye. That was Skipton Woolley from uh, Museum Victoria and the University of Melbourne. The Nature Paper, we will put a connection to that on our Facebook page, a link. It's uh, it's very sciencey. Um, if you don't have a science background, you might look at it and go, <laughs> wow. But uh, you can, if you read the summary, it will uh, certainly still give you the, uh, the, the gist of what it's all about. It's really amazing stuff. And also to have a PhD student have, uh, have his or her research published in Nature is really quite a special thing. Estamos escuchando Radio Marinana en tres triple R. I love that one. It's cute, isn't it? Yeah, it's super cute. <laughs> hey, uh, we're going to now cross to Terry Allen, our dive reporter, who is in South Australia and about to teach a diving course, so we're not going to keep her for very long. But good morning, Terry. Good morning, Bron. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. The lovely uh, sunny day here and the black cockatoos are flying overhead and uh, it's very nice. Very good. We had a few things we were going to catch up on today, but I think we might save a couple of them until we're in next time. But I did want to touch on, I mentioned at the start of the show, the uh, world record for free diving. And um, tell, give us the lowdown on this one. Yeah, so this was a um, fellow who was uh, from uh, New Zealand and he did the free diving um, uh, gosh, where was it now? Uh, Bahamas, I think. Bahamas, that's right. Yeah, Bahamas. And they have the blue holes there in Bahamas. So they're um, a great spot to do free diving where, you know, you don't have too much current and uh, and obviously it's very deep. Uh, he broke his own record. Uh, and then he, uh, I think about four or five days later, he broke it again. So uh, <laughs> amazing. So the free diving, there's different levels. They have um, they have assisted, unassisted, so they can have weights on them. They can go down, um, you know, a line with a little sort of trolley system. Um, some wear fins, some don't. So uh, it's become a very, it's become quite a popular sport. There's quite a lot of people learning free diving now and uh, there's a, a number there's a couple of very good instructors um in melbourne at least um so it, it's not just snorkeling like we know it it, it truly is uh breath hold diving and there are some amazing YouTubes out there of people going under ice and crazy stuff like that. <laughs> I'm, I'm amazed to hear that there are instructors in Melbourne and the only reason I say that is it's something that I have always associated with the tropics. We were talking before about The Big Blue, which yeah. um, which was a, an amazing film made in the 1980s, a really beautiful art piece, but also really you know, exposing the world of free diving. And, and uh, I've always assumed it's a tropical thing, but there are instructors in Melbourne who teach it. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as long as you've got the right um, wetsuits and stuff, then, yeah. I mean, it's obviously probably a bit easier in the tropics because, um, you know, in Melbourne, of course, we wear thicker wetsuits and you've got sort of buoyancy changes as you're going up, etc. So it is a bit harder, but, you know, we do have some really nice spots. Um, people can go down to reefs and uh, and you'll often see, I think Channel 31, you'll see guys that are free diving or and even... Um, uh, collecting crayfish under reefs and things like that. Um, there's also a sinkhole over here in Mount Gambier where I am at the moment that's o- now just open to free divers, um, which is amazing, you know, and, and they go down, they can go down to like 30 metres straight down, clear blue, gorgeous water and, of course, no currents. And, yeah, so um, I'm amazed that, you know, a, a sinkhole site has actually opened up to free divers. I know. I, I, can't, I can't believe it either. Are people doing it? Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah, and I've seen some nice photos, and yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Wow. Yeah. It's one of those things that I just think, yep, yeah, I'm going to leave that to those guys. <laughs> it's not something I can I see myself doing. I know, here I am as a cave diver thinking, oh my God, they're nuts. <laughs> <laughs> 
it is, it's supposed to be good for your own diving, you know, because you are controlling your breath a lot more. And I, I've had friends that have done the course that it's helped them in their general diving to sort of slow down their breathing rate and, uh, and you know, conserve the air in their tanks. So, um, you know, there's that side of it. And, of course, I guess it would be lovely just going down without hardly any equipment. And, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Any other diving news before we let you go? Uh, yeah, so the bay temperature uh, has dropped below the 17 mark. So we're at 16 and a half, I think. And uh, unfortunately, that Indian summer finishing during the week has uh, really uh, chopped up the bay and it's pretty dirty viz uh, and all the piers and everything. So uh, I think uh, go for a walk on the beach, but maybe don't go in the water until maybe next weekend. Yeah, maybe head down the west coast and appreciate the rolling surf and, and look at diving yeah, next yeah. weekend. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, well, enjoy Mount Gambier. We'll let you go and do your teaching and we'll catch up with you in the next couple of weeks. Yep, no problem, Ron. Okay, thanks. Thanks heaps, Terry. Bye. Bye. Terry Allen there, our dive reporter. Sounds great over there in uh, South Australia, though. Yeah. It is. Freshwater diving is a different experience. I've never been able to bring myself to do cave diving. But um, I've, I've done a little bit of, you know, that the diving within caves that doesn't actually take you into tunnels. Yeah. But, yeah, it's amazing. Hi, I'm David Suzuki, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR 102.7 FM. Now, if you tuned into last week's Radio Marinara, you'll remember our report of a turtle, a green turtle, that suddenly appeared in Blairgowry and our advice to contact the Marine Response Unit if it was spotted again. Well, after the show, we got chatting off air and we figured it was about time we caught up with the Marine Response Unit to find out more about who they are and talk about the amazing work that they do. So without further ado, we're very pleased to now be crossing to speak with Marine Response Unit Coordinator from Zoos Victoria, Mark Keenan. Good morning, Mark. Welcome to Radio Marinara. Welcome to Triple R. Good morning, Bron. So great to have you here because there's a backstory that's been going on behind the scenes. You actually got called out to a rescue as we were about to go to air with you at around uh, around nine thirty. So, um, and and this is the and, and you may get called out again. And this is, I guess, the dynamic nature of what you do, isn't it? It does make scheduling things kind of hard. So yeah, I'm um, yeah always at the whim of the phone. So yes, at any point things can happen, and um, it's feast or famine. You can go for long stretches with nothing happening, and then everything happens at once. Yeah. Let's talk about the Marine Response Unit. So, in a nutshell, tell us about who you are and what you do. Okay, so the AGL Marine Response Unit was put together in 2013. So Melbourne Zoo's had a long history of sort of dealing with marine wildlife, but increasingly it became evident that a resource unit was required. So we decided to put some resources to it, um, and those resources are pretty thin. It tends to be one person a day and the vet response. Um, but we essentially uh, respond to distressed uh, marine wildlife calls across the state. So sharks, rays, birds turtles, um, seals, cetaceans, we, um, we cover it all if we can. So do you have a boat? How do you actually go about doing your rescues? How does it work? Yeah, well, we don't have a boat. Look, we do get... Um, most of our work is around seals, uh, and we do have cases where we do have to intervene with seals in the bay, uh, and they tend to be on structures like Chinaman's Hat or South Channel Marker. Uh, and when we do require to go out there and sedate an animal, we take the vets, but we do have to borrow boats from others. Um, so we use other um, support government agencies like Parks Victoria or DELP or Fisheries. So they tend to support us fantastic in that realm. So you're saying that it tends to mostly be seals. What what tends to happen with the seal? And, and I'm interested in what you're saying about needing to sedate an animal. And I guess for our listeners, this, this might get a bit difficult to listen to, but I think it's really important that we cover this material. Can you talk us through some of the rescues that you do and, and why seals in particular? 
feels because uh, they're an interesting niche. Um, wildlife carers are absolutely fantastic, and around the, the Australia and, and worldwide, they deal with a lot of wildlife. But seals are an animal that they're not charged to deal with. They're considered too dangerous. Um, rehabilitation is very tricky because they're intelligent and become easily humanised. So they're a hands-off animal. So we feel a, a genuine niche to deal with seals. Mm. Um, so that's why, um, yeah, specifically why we do a lot of seal stuff because no one else can. Um, with seals, we get a whole gamut of things. We get injured animals. We get entangled animals. We get animals that are absolutely fine and just doing things that may seem weird but are actually within the realm of normal behaviour. Um, but, you know, entanglement and injuries are, are probably the two prime things that we respond to most. So um, in China, you know, in the Bay, we get things like entanglement and that, and that might be monofilament or other sorts of netting, but any, essentially any piece of um, marine debris that can entangle and encircle an animal, seals are very curious and they swim into it. And, and once they've swum into something, the lack of um, opposable thumbs means they can't get it off. And it often means that we see animals um, sort of essentially being choked to death. Yeah, I know that there are a few uh, animals that uh, weren't able to be rehabilitated and are now at the zoo. And it's really great. Um, I went out there with my kids on a school excursion a couple of years ago and it was all part of the seal the loop program which is which is i guess connected to to what you do are you able to talk about that i'm putting you on the spot here because i don't i know this is probably not exactly what you're up to but i'm, I'm guessing you're aware of it oh no absolutely we're, we're super passionate about seal the loop. there's a real synergy between seal the loop and and the marine response unit we sort of consider them one and the same so seal the loop's all about tackling marine debris at the source and trying to encourage fishermen to dispose of um excess fishing materials into bins that we've created. So we have 230 um, bins strategically placed around recreational fishing spots around the coast of Victoria and they're designed to put um, marine debris in. So we're trying to sort of, you know, I suppose it's, it's prevention and cure you know, the MIU really focuses on, on dealing with things when at the pointy end and, and the Seal the Loop program is about removing the debris before it becomes problematic. So what happens when you come across an injured animal? Are you able to mostly treat them out there in situ or do you need to bring them back? It really depends on the case. And, you know, um, the, the, look, the strength of our network is that, A, we have people reporting things and we've sort of got this centralised institution in, in the AGL Marine Response Unit that sort of funnels all these calls. But obviously the state's, state's a very big place. So we have to sort of um, work with a network of, of different people across the state to go and evaluate animals. So I'll get someone to go out and have a look and then they sort of feedback information to us and then we respond accordingly. Yeah, I was going to ask you about how much of the Victorian coastline do you cover? Because it's a long way from, say, Nelson right through to Mallacoota. Uh, how, how do you actually... So you, you have networks who you, who you work with? Yeah, and look, there's certain things that, you know, there's, there's, there's government agencies and wildlife carers and a whole bunch of people that we've sort of identified as, as key stakeholders and we deal with them across the state. And in some cases we don't have to go. But, you know, this morning there was a possibility that I was going to go to Port Ferry because um, we had an animal, uh, a young juvenile seal that um, looked quite emaciated and was um, spotted last night. But when we saw the photos, we could also see that it had suffered some head trauma. It looked like it had a boat strike or something like that. And, and um, we thought if there was a possibility that there was human causal factors that the animal probably needed attention and to be brought into care to have a look at. So there was a possibility of me driving to Port Ferry this morning, um, which we've done before, but um, it wasn't there this morning. So we just, uh, yeah, we just keep our eyes open and, and hopefully it pops up again. And I guess you're always on standby, aren't you? 
Yeah, we are. And, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to get results. Um, you know, they're not static animals. They move around. So um, it's quite frustrating at times. You, you get so close and, and, you know, yet so far. So, you know, driving three and a half hours to Port Ferry in the hope that the seals are going to be there is, is really a bit of a Hail Mary. Um, but in situations where we can't get local response and, and we're really the only people who can respond to it, then it's something we'd consider doing. Now, we mentioned the green turtle that was spotted last week. Um, was it found again? Have you got an update on that for us? It was last seen on Sunday. Um, Melbourne Aquarium sent a team out to dive for it on Monday and couldn't find it. I was actually recreationally diving on Saturday, so when the guys got a call, they said, hey, Mark, where are you diving today? Right. I said, I'm diving at Flinders, and they said, would you consider Blair Gary? And I said, oh, I don't know if the weather's too good, but they, they sent me over there, and I, I found the turtle, um, and oh. I was speaking directly to Melbourne Aquarium, um, and I, uh, I went down and, and assessed the turtle, and it, and it seemed in quite good body condition, but it was very, very quiet, and it let me manipulate it for, for some time. I had a good look at it to see whether it was injured and what was going on. I then went and called the aquarium and sort of had a quick chat to them because, look, they're the chief, you know, they have the skill set and the facilities. So we liaise, again, you know, with stakeholders to, to get, you know, it's a, it's, we're not certainly in isolation. We deal with lots of people to, to achieve the best welfare results. Um, and they sort of said, look, um, based on the fact that it is so quiet, maybe it is worth bringing in for assessment to see if there's something else going on with it. Mm. Um, but as soon as I went back in the water, of course, it had disappeared. So um, it was seen again the next day, but it hasn't been seen since. But fingers crossed. Um, they're very capable animals and travel large distances. So hopefully it's gone. I've had enough of it down here. It's getting too cold. It's <laughs> Head back up. Um, and we've had a, a text message from Rex Hunter, who's our in-house uh, marine archaeologist, maritime archaeologist. He said that there was a professional fisherman who saw a sunfish off Port Melbourne recently uh, seemed to be eating jellyfish, which is probably a bit outside your domain. But um, but sunfish are also tropical animals. So really interesting anecdotal information here about tropical animals popping up in Port Phillip Bay. Well, there is, an, there is um, a temperate species of sunfish, and we have had one before, and we had some jet skis that had to sort of drive it back. I think it even came into, into the bay, so they sort of drove it back out the heads. But, um, yeah, these things happen, you know, uh, and more and more we seem to see species that we haven't seen. Look, it's, it's, it's not uncommon to see sea turtles. We probably get three or four at least every year. Um, it's not sort of outside of their natural range to be in these waters and, 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 um, and spending time here. Yeah, and I suppose, yeah, I suppose our concern is is when they're starting to look sick. You know, I suppose that's the other thing. It's not outside their natural range, but sometimes animals get pushed down here when they're really struggling, and they're the ones that we deal with. And just to put sunfish in perspective too, they're enormous fish, aren't they? They're absolutely <laughs> yeah. massive. Yeah. So there's different species, and this is, you know, I, I'm not going to say it's small, but this is a. The, I think these are a smaller species than right. the big mola mola that people are, you know, but. These things are huge. Yeah, they're um, like hula hoop and bigger. They're huge, and, and massive people fish. Would, yeah, and, and, and just it's one of those things, I think the, the most amazing thing, and the call I had a moment ago was just about a seal very locally. I think it's the sheer surprise when people see something that they're just absolutely not expecting to see. Um, and I think anyone who came across a Mola Mola in Victorian waters would probably freak out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they've seen the Loch Ness Monster or something. Hey, Mark, we're going to move on, but it's been an absolute delight speaking with you, and I'm really hoping we can keep in touch more frequently. And if there's any anything that you need for us to get out to our listeners... Um, make sure you let us know and of course the phone number if people find an animal or they're concerned and they need to get in touch with you what what is the marine response unit number 
Absolutely. So if they see, come across any um, marine wildlife that they believe is distressed or they're concerned about, entangled, injured, any of the others, um, please give us a call on 1300 AGLMRU, which is 1300 245 678. So AGL, of course, being your uh, corporate sponsor. So 1300 AGLMRU for Marine Rescue Unit. That's a great number to remember. And we'll put a link to that on our Facebook page and the Triple R website as well. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Bron. Thanks so much. Mark and uh, good luck and I uh, hope you get a nice quiet Sunday. Okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, bye for now. Okay, bye. Mark Keenan there, uh, coordinator for the Marine Response Unit. What an exciting job. Yes. You have to get to go to lots of places. That's right. But Suddenly. Always being on standby. We're going to uh, listen to a station announcement and then when we come back, some news. The federal budget cut $1.4 million per year to community digital radio. This funding is essential to keep community radio in general on digital, which is vital to the future of Triple R and the community radio sector as a whole. Unfortunately, AM and FM will eventually go the way of analogue TV and 20 to 25% of listeners are already listening on digital radio. Show your support by signing the petition at keepcommunityradio.org.au. Hi, this is Wayne Lynch, and you're listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Well, Bron, you know that the world has been experiencing one of the strongest El Ninos that we've ever seen since about June last year mm. when it began to form. And uh, the countries that fringe the Pacific Ocean have been feeling those effects. So Australia and Indonesia uh, suffer from dry conditions and South America suffer from wetter conditions. And a place that I thought I'd tell people about, this has you know, been a, a place that I've always been interested in and wanting to dive, but Palau's treasured jellyfish lake. So Palau has a number of lakes. There's about 50 of them. Five have jellyfish. 50 and, lakes? Yeah. Wow. Uh, and one of these lakes is the one that is most popular to go to, which is the famous jellyfish lake. Um, these are sort of unusual lakes in that they're still connected through fissures to the ocean, to the ocean. So there are little cracks in the in the rocks which connect these lakes to the ocean. So they they're very much controlled by uh, ocean and, and marine conditions. But the dry conditions that have been experienced in Palau have. Um, cause the jellyfish to decline so normally you'd see about 12 to 8 million jellyfish in the lake uh, and so now they're thinking there's only about 600 to 300,000 there wow. so a dramatic reduction a huge reduction yeah very interesting someone said recently they went there diving and didn't see a jellyfish all day so, uh, which is a huge change from seeing being surrounded by millions of them um, one of the one of the reasons I think is that the lack of nutrients from not having runoff is is uh, decrease the food source for jellyfish. Um, but also, one thing I think that probably isn't getting enough attention is that over six hundred people dive the lakes every day. Every day. Every day. In fact, you don't dive. Sorry, snorkeling's prohibited. Sorry, diving scuba is prohibited because there's an anoxic layer down below that's quite toxic. So they oh, keep okay. people on on, on snorkel. Yep, yep, on the surface. But six hundred people into the lake every day. So the you know accumulative impact of us and our microbes and sunscreen and whatever else we take with us yeah. could also perhaps have exacerbated the impacts of El Nino. But 
um, I thought that was a really, really interesting signal to see. It is. Now, this has happened before. It happened around 98 when we had another super El Nino, uh, not as strong as the one that we've seen, but also very strong. And though the lakes recovered after some time because the polyps get to reproduce and the jellyfish come back. That's so. right. And a really interesting question about what the critical mass is. How low does it have to go before it becomes unrecoverable? 600,000. And knowing how many uh, juveniles get pumped out by indiv- a single individual jellyfish, you could get back up to those millions reasonably yep. quickly. You'd probably only need a couple of breeding cycles and have the conditions right. But uh, you're right, it's a really big, strong signal about that impact. It is, yeah. Yeah. It's been really fascinating. So um, we do have another location to talk about, which was Chile, but we'll perhaps save that for the other show because I think we've we've had a bit of an action-packed morning behind the scenes. I know listeners haven't been able to see that, but it has been very action-packed. And Angeline's brought in so much news, and we've only just scratched the surface of it. But we'll We'll uh, come back. Come back in a couple of weeks. That's right. Okay. Thank you, and thanks to our our guests today, Skipton Woolley from Museum Victoria and Mark Heenan from the Marine Response Unit. And we will put those uh, details on up on our Facebook page. Thank you so much, Nerida. She has been juggling several balls for us today and uh, as has Kent, who's out in the green room and uh, has been taking your calls and uh, always puts our show up as a podcast. So thank you very much, as always, to Kent. Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. Next week, Dr Surf and Dr Beach are in the house. Uh, I'm off um, looking after about 100 choir boys, so that's going to be an interesting uh, exercise for me. (laughs) I feel like it's going to be hurting cats, so we'll see how we go. Have a great Sunday. And uh, we'll catch you next week for more Radio Marinara. See you. Bye for now. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.